Stigma-Free Vet Zone is brought to you by the Orban Foundation for Veterans. Learn more by visiting Orban Foundation at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org. Donations help us continue to bring greater hope, understanding, resolution, and togetherness on issues of civilian readjustment for all military veterans and families. Please consider donating at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org forward slash donate. As a thank you, you'll receive a free copy of the book Sold Out, Conquering the Experiences of War by Michael Orban. Receive your free copy by donating at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org forward slash donate. And they would talk about people saying that he wasn't pulling people out, but he wasn't as far as our unit was concerned because we were operating at lower troop strength because some guys were going home and not getting replaced. So I had been over there Christmas of 69. So now we're coming up on Christmas 1970. So they gave myself and one other guy drops because we'd already been over there for one year, over one year as of December 8th. So I didn't tell my parents I was coming home. I told my brother-in-law in Chicago via a Mars call, which was, you may recall how we could call if you had the facility to do it. Welcome to the Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast. Our mission is to help veterans and their family members make the transition from the military to civilian life and culture. As best we can, we avoid stigmatizing names and terms. We feature conversations with those who have encountered unexpected reactions in their journey, including such things as nightmares, rage, and isolation. Veterans and family members in our segments share experiences that make them uniquely qualified to join the quest to identify, understand, and resolve these enormous life challenges. Thank you for choosing to make this journey with us. Here is today's segment. Hello, this is Bob Bach. Welcome to another conversation in our series of segments in the Stigma-Free Vet Zone podcast. Today, we're going to visit with Chuck Toysh from his home in Milwaukee. Chuck served with the Army in 1969 and 70 in Vietnam as a member of the 11th Infantry Brigade of the AmeriCal Division. Chuck has a varied career in his life. In the last 20 years, he has had the distinction of making dozens of trips to Vietnam Laos, and Cambodia to build more than 35 libraries. He is the founder and CEO of the Library of Vietnam Project. Chuck, it's wonderful to have you. Thanks for joining us today. Well, thank you, Bob. It's really an honor to be on board with some fellow vets and families and friends, you know. Well, that's for sure. Likewise, let's start with some of the basic stuff, where you grew up, your time, obviously, before the military, where you went to high school, et cetera. Did you play sports? Just tell us whatever you like. Okay. Well, Pretty simple, like most of us. I went to Kewaskum High School, raised on a dairy farm, family farm, and milk cows and so on, and played football, baseball, basketball, you know. And so I had a pretty lucky childhood, good family, good mom and dad, you know. So I didn't face the kind of challenges a lot of people do. But actually, on on the farm, there is a small... I had a beer party one night in April 1969. And my mom and dad came home early and they found us. And we had this argument and I had already been talking to this buddy of mine about volunteering for the draft. And we we had a register for the draft in Hartford, Wisconsin, from given where we lived in Washington County. And so I said, well, I'm going to volunteer for the draft. And I don't think I'll have to go to Vietnam anyway, because, you know, 
play sports, do this, do that. Yeah, well, my dad said, well, first of all, don't do that. There is the war. There is this. There is that. My mom was concerned. But the next day, my buddy and I did drive to Hartford. We did volunteer for the draft. And we were going to go in on a buddy program. And so that I never said anything about it. So about the end of May, about two weeks before I graduated, we were supposed to be going to the service on July 18th. But it turned out that they mixed up on the paperwork. My buddy, they had going in on July 18th, but they had me going in on June 18th. And June 18th happened to be my 18th birthday that day. (laughs) Wow. So I get home from school one day toward two weeks before the end of (laughs) high school. And my dad is, we're in the barn milking the cows. (laughs) And he pulls us out and a piece of paper. He said, what did you do? <laughs> he said, oh, greetings. You know, and it was the draft notice, not a volunteering for uh, the reserves. So I was a U.S., not an RA during training, which turned out to be a good fortune all its own. But so my brother Jack had just gotten back from Korea and he took me out that night. And he said, you did the right thing. Go ahead and get it behind you and get the experience. Jack later became sheriff of Washington County. But he also always was supportive right from the beginning of the fact that I volunteered for the draft because it was not very far down the list that they were drafting guys that were that young, mm-hmm. just having turned 18 as my buddy had. So Those were the days of a draft number, as I recall. And if you had a low number, you would be drafted sooner than later. Actually, the draft lottery began a year later. Oh, okay. And mm-hmm. my number, it turned out... Well, we were in Vietnam, and we were very interested as to what the hell was our draft number going to be. And so mine, it turned out, was 361. Holy man. Wow. And, it represented uh, good protection back in those days. Yeah. Wow. So, so it was the last year of the draft. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so that, were, that's the kind of thing old guys like us would only know about. I mean, <laughs> well, it is. It's sort of an obscure fact, I yeah, guess. Yeah, it's an obscure, unimportant yeah. fact. But, mm-hmm. So you you volunteered for the draft. You, they they picked you, obviously, and you went in. Where did you go, and, and what well, did you do while you were in service? Went to Fort Campbell, Kentucky for basic training, then went to AIT at Fort Polk, Louisiana, which was an infantry school. Infantry, yeah, right. 11 Charlie mortars. And parenthetically, I met a high school class one year guy one year ahead of me down at Fort Polk, and he became a Cobra gunship pilot. We had an interesting conversation that we never had back at home. He was in his first weeks of basic training, and I was down there for AIT. So I could get off my company area, but he was tied to his because it was just new in the service. But we, I went to meet him on a Saturday afternoon. We talked all afternoon. His name was Jim Manti. And we talked about the future in a way that we never did before. And it was interesting. And he was talking about plans and I talked about plans and traveling. And he was going to go to Vietnam, he figured, because his condition for enlisting was to become a pilot. Well, when I got back from Vietnam, which was in December 24th, Christmas Eve 70. He went over to Vietnam in February and he then he was shot down and killed March 21st, 1971. So his 50th anniversary is coming up here now next year and uh, we hope to have a little bit of memorial for him. But but going to the service, that part of my training down in AIT sticks out in my memory now as an old guy. <laughs> 
And you were talking with him about hopes and, and aspirations, etc., while facing the very real possibility yourself that Vietnam was the most immediate thing on the horizon. How did that line up? Well, you know, we had kind of a, a shared curiosity about the nature of the war, but also a recognition that he, having signed up to go to flight school and me already knowing that I was going to be in infantry, had reservations. So we, we had a mixed feeling, but also a kind of a driving curiosity to see what the heck was going on over there. And for better or for worse, we both found out. Well, that's right, which leads into my next question. So you go through training. Did you pretty much go straight through training and straight to Vietnam? Yeah. Yeah. I was 18 and a half when I got on the plane in Milwaukee, which was December 8, 1969. In fact, when I went back the first time, it was kind of a curiosity I had percolating in my mind over the years that I'd like to meet the Vietnamese people in peace. Mm -hmm. And December 8th of 69, I went. So I played a little game with myself and scheduled December 8th, 1999, that I took off to fly over there on my return. So it was exactly 30 years to the day. Oh, that is quite a coincidence. Yeah, it was just a personal planned coincidence and no importance to anybody (laughs) else. But to me, it had some significance. Tell us about arriving in Vietnam. I would imagine you mentioned yourself that you and your friend had an interest in what it was really like, how upon arrival in Vietnam did what you saw line up with what you expected to see? You know, I don't know what I expected. It was such a new learning experience for me. I want, I, that'd be an interesting thing to talk to some fellow veterans about to see what they expected versus what they found. But we landed, and I was fortunate, we took a a United Airlines flight as opposed to a ship or even flying tigers because we had stewardesses and everything else. And so I I was lucky in that sense, but we landed at Cameron Bay and then then we're sent up to an induction, kind of like an induction reception station after getting our fatigues and all of that in Cameron to Chulai. And that's where the AmeriCal division, division base was. And there we had about a week of in-country training, lectures by sappers, by um, guys that wanted to know, looking for volunteers to be rangers. They, they took a couple guys up in a plane. We were on the South China Sea. And so they were dunking these guys in the ocean. So their question was, wouldn't you like to do that? <laughs> I said, no. <laughs> but also, they had the sappers there, and they made an impression because they were really good at getting through concertina wire and stuff like that, you know. And so the, the, the impact, the seriousness of what we were about to engage in began to take hold. So these would have been actual enemy troops who had converted into trainers for the army? Yes. Is that it? Okay. Yep. Yep. You know, they said they were Chu Hoys or Kit Carson scouts. And, mm-hmm. and later on, uh, when we were in the mountains in Quang Nai, we never trusted those guys ever. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Is that right? Yeah. 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 But some of them were probably true. But, uh, it's kind of an interesting thing with VC and Chu Hoys. You know, they were they were fighting for their own lives too. I mean, their commitment to philosophy wasn't really top priority. It was commitment to family and their country. You know, so I've always had mixed emotions about 
the enemy in the sense that they were to be respected and not called the dinks, chinks, and other things we use, terms of art we used in training. Everybody, every GI knows that. You guys know that. Everybody does. The Chu Hoi program, just as a kind of rough description, was sort of a program to encourage defections from the North, from soldiers from the North or Viet Cong to the America, the American side for a variety of purposes. And it was conducted just as a quick aside in, in one way by the dropping of leaflets by the hundreds of thousands over areas of Vietnam, encouraging defection from whomever might pick up one of these things stuck to a tree or on a trail or whatever. And it had some success and as a kind of non violent way of conducting the war. Interesting, I guess, at least from that standpoint. But So you are now assigned to a unit, and in a previous conversation, you and I chatted a little bit about the weaponry. I think you were with 81 millimeter mortars. Is that right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's an important distinction because the 81 millimeter mortar was light enough to carry out... In the line companies, right, yeah. In, into battle, into operations or ambushes or what have you versus other heavier mortars that might be available that would not be able to fill that role. So you were, in effect, an infantryman carrying a, a tube or a base plate or what have you. Were you, were you scared? Sure. <laughs> you know, but but we had all, all the old timers, uh, they would joke about FNGs, you know, new guys. Right, right. Off. But they did look out for us. You know, the older guys would take care of the new guy in country. I was lucky because after being there a couple of months, it was put in the 4.2 inch mortars, which is a big base plate and and a godsend compared to what, where I was before that. Although the, the two things that uh, affected me most in the year that I was there did not happen during the short period of time I was associated with the 81 millimeters. It was when we got into the four deuce in the four deuce, we, we did do some CAs to kind of pop up, for lack of a better word, fire bases. And what were CAs? Combat assault. All right. But in the fire bases, well, going back to one thing I did that has stuck with me is, and, and GIs will have a countless stories about this too, so I, I don't pretend I'm telling you anything that the GIs that may hear this haven't seen themselves in spades. But one thing I had to do was to calculate the, the, the rounds and the shots and the, the amount of press TNT that went on when they dropped the round. And you know how they have, they used a 6,400 mil circle. And I was at the bank one day, 30 years later, and a lady in, inverted a number on my deposit. And when she inverted that number, it didn't go in right and this and that. And she was apologetic. Oh, I inverted that number. I said, no, let me tell you about what an inverting a number really means. One time I was called, a, it was a fire mission called at about two o'clock in the morning. And we have this big thing with the pins and, the, and then you have the elevations and you have to calculate the elevations, the range and everything else. Well, on a 6,400 mil circle, 16, 32, 48 and 64 are the quarters. And what I did Instead of calling in, and I'm roughly giving it a number, instead of calling in one three, which would be at about three o'clock, you know, a quarter around the circle, I called in 31. I inverted that number. That meant that we were shooting in a 25 degree or one quarter circle, different direction. And over the air came these, who the 
F is shooting at us and screaming and everything. The rounds, luckily, they were at a different elevation that, than the one I had calculated for on the original fire mission target. And so the rounds fell ahead of these guys and nobody was killed. But that was an act of God. And I, mm -hmm. I have never forgotten that. And I, I take that serious. When I see stories about friendly fire, and then I see a lot of uh, outrage over it, which I can understand. But on, on the other hand, to understand what war is all about. And having done something like that myself, I, I got a lot of uh, compassion for, for any guy in any war that does the human things you can do in, in your life, you know, mistake. And at the bank, it would have been a little less money in my account. Mm -hmm. In the war, it means people die. It, it was a heck of a difference, and I've never forgotten that. The other well, thing is we had nine Vietnamese in a river down in a valley. And right. we fired Willie Peter, white phosphorus on him, and successful fire mission, meaning we hit the target. There were nine guys. They were all killed. But I asked different guys why we fired Willie Peter rather than HE rounds. And, mm -hmm. uh, Which would be high explosive. To, right. It was to make sure we neutralized the target, mm -hmm. for lack of a better term. But, but that always kind of weighed on me, too. So everybody's got some story to tell. So that, those are two things that in Fort Deuce right. have always stayed with me. As remarkable as both of those stories are, one in a very tragic way, but in fact, that is war. But the fact that you would be standing in line at the bank and the story of the four deuce mortar experience would come up so vividly. Did that surprise you? Yeah, I guess now that you, you, you mentioned that, Bob, it, it probably does surprise me now. At the time, it seemed like a very logical way to make the lady, to give the lady some sense of perspective that there was nothing to get upset about. And her manager was standing behind her and I could see the manager maybe was going to read her the riot act for this big mm -hmm. mistake she made. But I wanted them to have some perspective. And to that limited extent, uh, that experience in Vietnam may have made her day a little bit better. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, <laughs> That is very interesting. So you served your tour and you came home. Were you wounded physically over there? No, no, I wasn't. And we had some guys in our unit that were but we, we were all in all, we were pretty lucky. And then when I was in Fort Deuce, that carried with it all the benefits of at least being a quasi rear area. So I had a good, a good tour compared to what so many other guys have had to deal with. So, How about coming home? Now, was coming home, if you can hearken back to perhaps recalling what you expected it to be, and then in reality, what was it really? Can you compare those two? Sure. Well, first, the actual coming home, I had extended 40 days because Nixon was pulling people out. And we were kind of frustrated over there. We'd get the uh, stars and stripes occasionally when the weather worked and we could get choppers out for our mail. And they would talk about people saying that he wasn't pulling people out, but he wasn't as far as our unit was concerned because we were operating at lower troop strength because some guys were going home and not getting replaced. So I had been over there Christmas of 69. So now we're coming up on Christmas 1970. So they gave myself and one other guy drops because we'd already been over there for one year, over one year as of December 8th. So I didn't tell my parents I was coming home. I told my brother-in-law in Chicago via a Mars call. 
which was, you may recall how we could call if you had the facility to do it. And so I got back and when I walked in the house on Christmas Eve of 1969, my mother and dad didn't expect me. They thought I was in Vietnam. So it was, it was just a, a lucky, happy day. That said, when I got home after that, I decided, obviously, I was going to look into going to college. And I went to UWWC. That's the University of Wisconsin-Washington County, which at that time was pretty new. And there I did have the ultimate story happen to me that some veterans talk about and other veterans say, well, that's a lot of hyperbole. And it didn't really happen. It did happen to me. A guy got up and said, well, we got a baby killer here. And that was me, and there was one other Navy guy who was there. And I still remember, I was 19 and a half at that point. And so this this kid is calling me a baby killer. I didn't say anything, but I got up and just left the classroom and left the school at that point. So I then later on, I read an account of somebody else's return to the war and how they claimed that, that that was a lot of hyperbole, a lot of talk by some people. But for me, it really wasn't. So when other guys talk about being spat on, I was never spat on, but I do recall that that instance and how it impacted me as a 19 and a half year old kid at that point, you know. And how did it impact you? Well, later on, I didn't go to college at first, so I uh, actually hitchhiked to Detroit. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and there I got a job selling magazines door to door. So I sold magazines door to door in Detroit, Pontiac, Michigan, and on to Cleveland, Ohio. And then I was doing pretty well at that. So they sent me out to the West Coast. So I went to to Denver, met a guy with a furniture truck. We drove it out West and we went to colleges and universities and hired these gals to work for it. This went on for about a year and a half. It was quite an experience for a young guy, but it also was a mixture of the war experience with now the anti-war experience. Because when we were on the campuses, all the campuses were in a rage because of the protests. So there at one point, well, right toward the end of that, I was already kind of losing interest in it because I didn't see a results-oriented thinking in the side of the protesters. It was, and it was, there was some antipathies for guys that were veterans, and I wasn't the only veteran in these groups. But unless you really signed on to everything they had, as I say, there was some antipathy. So one night we were out drinking and some guys were doing drugs and I was, I was an oiler, as they called it. We slept and then the next morning, I always had some money on me. I was selling some books and making some money. And I had been thinking about coming back east, as I said. But one guy came up and I still remember where I was sitting in this house in Springfield, Oregon, which is a suburb of Eugene, where there's a university there. He came out and said, well, man, you know, we need some money to buy this baby formula. Now, he'd already gone through everybody inside the house and he came out and he hadn't gotten any money because nobody else had any money. I had some money. So I said, are you telling me that out of all the people in this house, everybody spent every last dollar and nobody has money for that baby? He says, well, you know, it's a baby, you know. I said, well, I agree with you. It is a baby. So, you're, you know, certainly I've got money for a baby. So I gave him the money, and then I had my buddy who had a car. I said, drive me to, to, to the airport. And I had enough money for a plane ticket, and I flew back to Milwaukee. And that was my the end of my foray into <laughs> the, uh, to the mixed cultural upheaval that was going on at the time in protest of the war. During the period of time that you were in association with this particular group, did you share the fact that you were a Vietnam veteran? 
Yeah, they and they they knew that. Yeah, and some of them were nice. I mean, not everybody was bad, but but then some were in the baby killer mode. Not that anybody there called me that. That was a different story. But uh, so you come back to Milwaukee, and then if I understand correctly, you to uh, shorten it a little bit, you you ended up going to law school. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I went up to UW Stout for two years, got through in two years, and then went down to IIT Kent Law School in Chicago. Mm -hmm. It's right next to the Sears Tower. Was there a reason why you wanted to become an attorney? Yeah, you know, that was even in my mind when I was 16. So it, it was kind of a return to <laughs> return home psychologically. So, but I always had in my mind going back to Vietnam or thinking about Vietnam at some level. You know, I, I kind of, this is my assumption, but in talking to a lot of vets, I think a lot of vets do have that kind of in the back of their mind. They go live their lives, but but still they reflect periodically, you know, and then and then later in life it starts to surface in a bigger way. So that did the Vietnam experience in any way interject itself into your legal career? Yeah, I started representing veterans. And oh. of course, back then, you couldn't charge for that. You could charge $15. You mean represent them with the Veterans Administration yeah. or something? And benefits yeah, cases? in Chicago. Okay. Mm -hmm. I would go to these hearings and the older veterans and bless their spirits, but the, the spirit was willing, but the flesh was weak when it came to representing somebody adequately in a hearing against the VA to try to obtain benefits. That is something that's gotten a heck of a lot better because a lot of veterans were making a political audit issue out of it over the years. We're lucky, I'm lucky now that the benefits I that I benefit from are there. And that's because a lot of guys were doing a lot of protesting, a lot of complaining. So that's the good side of protests is I owe thanks to a lot of guys I'll never meet. Mm -hmm. Let me just clarify one thing. The service organization representatives in those years that you're speaking of, did they not want Vietnam veterans to qualify for benefits? Were they in some way no. discriminating against them? Or? What they felt was that if attorneys were paid fees, the attorneys okay. would, would, would be literally stealing from the veterans. So in their mind, they were protecting the veterans from the the ravenous attorneys. All right. Okay. But that led to a lot of disadvantage for a lot of veterans. There, there is one guy that he insisted on paying me and he mailed me a check on uh, New Year's. I, I, what happened was he, he got into the service and he had an appendix in a formation at basic training and they didn't believe it. And it turned out it ruptured and he almost died. So then he comes back and he applies for disability benefits, which he was richly entitled to. And they lost that hearing and then finally came into my office. I was on a Chicago Bar Association lawyer referral panel for a number of years for medical malpractice and medical type of stuff <laughs> dealing with lawyers. And won that case and he won about $60,000 in back benefits. And he mailed me a check for 2000 and uh, that check, statute of limitations having run, I did keep because he insisted I'd keep it. And he really did. He was a nice guy. And I, <laughs> uh, it also was kind of an eye opener as to the, to the road to hell being paved with good intentions. The good intentions were there on these older veterans, but the ability to adequately represent a veteran in a hearing wasn't there, at least not in these more sophisticated matters and questions relating to medical 
limitations and stuff. So the intentions might have been sound, but it was leading to really unfortunate consequences, the way you describe it. Yeah, yeah. We are visiting with Army and Vietnam veteran Chuck Toish. He is our guest today on the Stigma Free Vets podcast. And Chuck is the founder and CEO of the Library of Vietnam Project. Chuck, you've mentioned a couple of times that you had in you, at certain points in your life, a spirit to give back. And you've taken time to describe that in, in a few different ways. Tell us how and when and why you became involved with the undertaking to build libraries in Vietnam and, and Laos and elsewhere. Well, first thing is freedom. And I always, always felt an affinity for libraries back in when I was a kid, you know, and then, then in law school, it turned out I had a, a good librarian and she used to help me. And I, I was working full-time days at a law firm. And then I'd go to the library and I'd have to get certain books and she would give me these books. I could, I'd take them out and bring them back early the next morning. And, and, and she really, I don't even know her name now. I can't remember it, but she played a role in that. But that kind of my history of, I always love to go to libraries, bookstores, stuff like that. So personal affinity for that, but also the importance of freedom to have access to all that information. So I always felt that that would be the thing that a way to, to, to contribute in Vietnam. Now, it wasn't my idea to build a library back there. When I went over there the first time in December 69, Tran Dinh Sum, who was an Arvin officer who did two years in the re-education camps after the war. I'll just interject that the Arvin, the Army of the Republic of Vietnam, were the allies of the Americans in Vietnam. Sure. Go ahead. He, for his part, was at that point a translator and a tour guide, and that's how I got linked up with him. I wanted to go over there, first of all, alone. I didn't want to go with other veterans, and second of all, I wanted to go with a Vietnamese guy, and I wanted to travel alone. So I set this all up, and when I got over there, we had a meeting with the People's Committee, and I bought two baby water buffalo for two of the poor families, and I told them... Before I went, I wanted to go to a funeral, a wedding, and then a birthright. Those are kind of the demarcation points in a life. And I, I thought I'd become more in tune with the cultural aspects of Vietnam in a small way that you could do on a short trip. And he, he did that. And, but in the meeting with the People's Committee, there had been a big flood. Actually, there were 600,000 people out of their homes. This was in December 1999. It's still in the record books in Vietnam. The kids, I noticed something on the way down to Quang Nai, where I served Duck Pho, women carrying the kids on their back through these rushing waters. And the kids holding their books over their heads. <laughs> and I said, holy smokes, don't they call off school around here? And uh, Song said, no, 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 no. They can go to school, you know. And so they went to school, and that stuck in my mind. And then when we got talking to the uh, People's Committee, I had given them a little bit of money, but uh, it also, you know, I was open to doing something. And then Song said, well, how about the next, when we drove back to Kung Nai to the hotel that night, he said, well, how about building a library? Our country does not have libraries. I said, that is the perfect suggestion song. So that's what led to building the first library. And, you know, they always say it's better to be lucky than to be smart. 
Well, I was a lot luckier than I ever was smart because the people's committee there was honest. The contractor there was honest and a good contractor. And when I first decided to build that library, I came back and asked a few guys, well, you want to kick in some money? And I understood they were reticent, you know, communist government and dealing with the communist party and all of that. They didn't really want us. So I ponied up the money myself. And when the, the when this guy did it, he built a beautiful building. And so I had a friend of mine I had met in Hanoi, Chuck Searcy, and he worked with the Vietnam Vets Memorial Fund out of Washington, D.C. And he said, you know, maybe I could ask Jan Scruggs, who was the founder of the, uh, the wall in Washington, and then his chief financial officer, Bob Frank, they would come over and look at this library. So two months later, after we dedicated, they came and looked at it. They liked it. They said, would you go to Quang Tri and build a couple? I said, sure we would. So they funded the next two, and they were up in Quang Tri. One was in Dak Rang, and the other was in Quang Tri Town near the DMZ. So, so I was lucky that that guy, they were honest guys. If I run into dishonest guys, my money's gone, and I never go back. You know what I mean? It, I really thank God for that. And, and those guys, I have since, by the way, that chairman of that people's committee has died. And after 10 years, we had a get together. Then I met him, but a year later he died. And I've gone to see his mother three times in the last seven years about that. And she has my picture on her wall. And he, he was a, a communist soldier, VC, but we weren't VC in American at that point. We were citizens helping right. kids. You know what I mean? Pretty simple all in all. <laughs> Thanks for listening to part one of this episode. Tune in next week for part two. Thank you for listening to the Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast. Your feedback is always welcomed and encouraged. You'll find contact information on our webpage, OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org. Our program is produced by Blueberry Pro Productions. On behalf of Michael Orban, this is Bob Bach. Thanks for joining us and please tune in again.